Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here this week with some amazing true tales from the old timey newspapers. Gotta love them old timey newspapers. Which, by the by, I have started an account over on Post, which is one of the new um, social media sites popping up in, in Twitter's wake. And uh, it's literally, it's Christy Baxter's old news. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, if anybody is interested and you're on that platform, uh, come follow me and you can read my weird tales that I put in the, uh, in the newspapers. Most of them are like, there's no overlap between our episodes and that. So, Aren't you fancy? I'm very fancy, yes. So, oh uh, yes, there's also um, a note if you hear any jingling in the background, which I'm thinking you probably won't. But just in case, that is our new kittens. Very, very cute kittens. They, and they have bells on. They have bells. And their names, names are Bug and Bongo, and they're wonderful. And, but I think they're probably going to sleep. Yeah. yeah. I just realized, <laughs> though, that those names, Bug and Bongo, could easily also be the names of Santa's elves. That is true. And over on the Patreon, uh, you insisted that the sound of the bells jingling was actually the elves I had kidnapped. Yes, yes, yes. To build you whatever kind of toys that you want. I mean, that's the dream, right? <laughs> that is. And there's also going to be a battle royale between Christy and Santa. Who will win? <laughs> um, duh, me. <laughs> Pretty sure it's Santa. Ah, <laughs> uh, that old man. Well, his back is probably better than mine. <laughs> got, he, he's got a huge sack. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I can't top that. <laughs> So, and yes, over on the Patreon, that's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, you can come and hear us tell more tales from newspapers, hear us tell tales of, uh, you know, murders and crimes that have been lost to history that we find by digging through the old newspapers. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I told Amber a tale uh, that ended with a speech from a judge that made the vein in her forehead throb. <laughs> Just a little bit. I was actually trying really hard to control all of the F words, and I know that at least 10 slipped through, so my bad. I, I can't, can't blame you because, yeah, I, I think 10 in a row slipped through when I first read that article. Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, a man and a, a judge in 1912 thought that, you know, women who weren't wearing hoop skirts, which he wished we would go back to the day of, were basically asking to be murdered. Or raped, at the very least. At the very least, yes. yes. How dare you tempt a man? <laughs> so Showing ankle. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Five bucks a month. To hear Christy make me mad. <laughs> it's worth it. All right, should we tell some tales from the old-timey newspaper? Let's do. You start. I'm going to start on New Year's Day. Ooh, okay. That's what I'm going to start on, because uh, it is currently January, and why the hell not? So, uh, flees hospital for last fling as death waits. Green Bay, Wisconsin, December 31st. Determined to have a last fling, a dying man's determination to have a last fling on New Year's Eve, even though he hastens death, was revealed today with the disappearance of J.C. Buckley from St. Mary's Hospital. Buckley, who said he was a Toledo, Ohio electrical worker, was taken to the hospital from a hotel a week ago. He was desperately ill with a heart ailment. For three days, physicians believed he would die within a few hours. 
Then he rallied. Even then, the doctor said, death might come at any moment. Complete quiet and medical treatment were essential, they said. Buckley smiled and told his nurse that life is only a gamble anyway. Then, while she was out of the room, Buckley disappeared. The nurse recalled that Buckley had told her again and again that if death was near, he intended to enjoy the few hours that remained to him. She said that before he became ill, he had purchased tickets to the Rose Bowl football game to be played tomorrow in Pasadena, California. Police found a cab driver who said Buckley had borrowed $10 from him. Another hospital patient who had sympathized with the man reported a similar loan. <laughs> so this guy was like, you're going to die in a couple hours, maybe. There's, you're you're going to die. And he's like, cool. Can I borrow 10 bucks? Can I borrow 10 bucks? Can I borrow 10 bucks? I'm going to the Rose Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. I am going to tell you uh, a couple of news items from the Vernon County Center in 1891. Henry Lucas is a farmer at Hickory Wife, Tennessee. He gave a big husking bee at his home. All the lads and lassies for miles around were present. Miss Mary Smith was the belle of the evening and admired by all the young men. John Mann was very successful in finding red ears to be rewarded by kissing Miss Smith. Abner Jones became jealous of young man, which... (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. And accused him of cheating. A free fight ensued between the two factions. Mann was slashed with a knife and came near bleeding to death. Others were badly injured. And then the next item is, a mob of masked men entered the jail at DeWitt, Arkansas, and shot to death J.A. Smith, Floyd Gregory, and Mose Henderson. Smith hired Henderson to shoot his divorced wife. Guess people didn't take that too well. Oh, my. (laughs) Uh, I am going to share with you a very unfortunate ad. Oh, boy. So, uh, apparently, this used to be the name of a shoe, uh, but all I saw was lot 35, black kid, 885, um, but it's a shoe, it is a shoe, but that was the ad, and it drew my eye immediately, I'm like, what, what, what? this is 1938, uh, maybe not name your shoe that, well, the thing is, is that We've seen ourselves how much the old-timey N-word comes up, or the word colored, Yes, when, yes. when describing people. No, of note, you very rarely see them mention if anybody is white. No, no, but this is a bargain in coward comfort. <laughs> at $8.85 and up, a coward shoe at $8.85 is an amazing value. Coward quality workmanship, of course. But more important is the honest-to-goodness comfort that distinguishes every coward shoe. (laughs) That's good enough for me. I'm not going to read the rest. But, uh, yes, that was just some unfortunate names for all of it, really. Yeah, there's a lot of unfortunate stuff there. (laughs) I have an advertisement for you. This is uh, an advertisement that draws you in with the headline, Pretty Children. And then a quote from a Kentucky attorney at law. We have three children. Before the birth of the last one, my wife used four bottles of mother's friend. If you had the pictures of our children, you could see at a glance that the last one is healthiest, prettiest, and finest looking of them all. My wife thinks mother's friend is the greatest and grandest remedy in the world for expectant mothers. 
This was just a lotion. It was literally like water and oil. That's it. And, uh, but they claim mother's friend prevents nine-tenths of the suffering incident to childbirth. The coming mother's disposition and temper remain unruffled throughout the ordeal because this relaxing, penetrating liniment relieves the usual distress. A good-natured mother is pretty sure to have a good-natured child. The patient is kept in a strong, healthy condition, which the child also inherits. Mother's friend takes a wife through the crisis quickly and almost painlessly. It assists in her rapid recovery and wards off the dangers that so often follow delivery. That reminds me of this beautiful headline that I uh, snipped for you. It's just the headline because I didn't give a shit about the article. Let's just be real about it. Uh, the headline, News Offers Many Cash Awards for Beautiful Children. Oh. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> it was like one of those like contests for who has the prettiest baby. But that was the headline, Cash Awards for Beautiful Children. And it, was, it made me very uncomfortable, but also I was just like, yes, that is, that is perfect for this. Um, so I will go ahead and tell you about Pokes Bird Nest and Wings Self in Clarksville, Texas, January 15th of 1938. The next time Eldridge, Eldridge Duke 24 wants to punch a bird's nest from a tree, he will use something other than the butt of his gun. Duke and his young nephew James were hunting rabbits near Unknona when they, the boy spied a bird's nest in a tree. The uncle attempted to dislodge the nest with the butt of his loaded gun. The weapon was discharged, the shot striking him in the left leg. Oh that, my. my friends, is what we call karma. <laughs> that is absurd. Maybe don't try to knock down a bird's nest, you big jerk. I have, um... Okay, uh, there's also a shooting involved here. At Warrenton, Missouri, the other day, while out hunting, Adolf Kimmies accidentally shot himself through the hand. Efforts were made to stop the flow of blood, but all to no avail. He died from loss of blood. Wait, what? He was shot in the hand, and somehow he died from loss of blood. Did he have, like, three drops to begin with, or what? I, that's, mm, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is why we read the old-timey newspapers. It's stuff, stuff like this that just leaves you questioning reality. Like, what? <laughs> and physics and biology. Did he shoot, like, the whole hand <laughs> off? Because that's the only way that this computes to me. Did he shoot his hand several times? It, it could be, and I do have a story in here, something along those lines. But we'll get there because I don't feel like digging. I was going to tell you about a really cool thing that happened. Okay. I was surprised by this. Convicts keep honor paroles. Montgomery, Alabama. So basically, the, the mayor or the governor decided, I'm going to let a bunch of convicts leave prison to go home and spend Christmas with their families. So he released like 550 of the most worthy convicts to go home for Christmas and New Year's. They kept doing this. This is actually not as rare as you might hope. It was, um, I think in the 70s or 80s, there was a man, uh, his name escapes me, but he, they, they did um, a little Christmas shopping trip so that the inmates could get Christmas presents for their families. They just took them to the mall and let them go. 
And this guy uh, fled, and he hasn't been caught since. And he had murdered a child. Oh, lovely. Let's yeah. take him to the mall. Now, the thing is, is I cannot remember, honestly, if he murdered the child before he was uh, put into jail, or if that was after he was escaped. Oh, I can't remember, and it's driving me crazy. But today marked the end of a two-week vacation granted the men and women for good conduct. They were bound only by word of honor, man-to-man packs with Governor Bib Graves and their wardens to come back. They filtered in from all directions, but at least one didn't make it. His mother called from Huntsville to report him in a hospital suffering from appendicitis attack. And then there was another woman who cooks at the prison, and she had called to let, her, let them know that she had missed a bus and could not make the deadline, but said, I'm on my way. And one man called from Memphis because he missed a bus, and he would be 30 minutes late. Hmm. But everybody came back except for those three. Two had missed a bus, and the third was in the hospital. And they all called, well, one... The mother called, but they all let them know where they were, that they would be coming back. I thought that was a really neat kind of thing. That's very impressive, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's cases like this that encourage them to keep doing stuff like that, which is fine until you run into a case where a murderer gets loose. Uh, that, the podcast I listened to about that was called Have You Seen This Man, by the way, for anybody who's listening. I would recommend it. It was pretty good. But also, maybe not do that with murderers. Maybe not, yeah. Maybe those aren't the most worthy or, or, or trusted, you know, people that you, you yeah, find I, in I the prison. Yeah, I feel like those are not the ones that you let out for <laughs> good behavior. Grab, grab an embezzler, you know? Yeah. Something, something uh, white collar. <laughs> what did you do on your two-week parole? Oh, you know, a pyramid scheme. <laughs> there you go, exactly. I joined an MLM. <laughs> I sell leggings now. Would you like to try some? <laughs> They're so soft. (laughs) Uh, Here is a case where uh, things didn't go as expected, let's say. A burglar, after filling his pockets with money and other valuables from a chest in Mrs. Mary McDonald's boarding house, Shemokin, PA, went to the attic where her two daughters slept. The glaring light from the dark lantern awoke the girls, who screamed. He disappeared and a search was instituted. On entering the bedroom of James O'Neill, a boarder, Mary McDonald saw a stranger in bed with him. It proved to be the burglar who had resorted to strategy in order to escape. The strategy apparently being snuggling. <laughs> Let's just cuddle. <laughs> cuddle puddle. I'm robbing the house. <laughs> just pretend that you invited me in. <laughs> Don't ask why I'm taking my clothes off. Um... A struggle followed, and an artery in the right arm of the burglar was cut, but he escaped by jumping from the window. I have a, uh, a, a little bit of good news to give you. So this is Charleston, West Virginia. 15-year-old Betty Jean Boggs celebrated the new year by walking around the garage while her father greased the car and then went to a movie. It's not, it might sound weird, but to Betty... These are as thrilling as anyone could have asked, for they meant that after two years and four months of laying face down, she was able to walk normally again. Holy shit. Even more exciting was the prospect of high school this month after an absence of three years. Because she studied while she was bedfast, she doesn't expect to lose more than a year. 
Betty Jean suffered deep burns on the, on her back from her neck to her heels on January 4th of 1935 when her pajamas and bathrobe caught fire from a gas stove. Yeah, for some reason, they just dressed children in the most flammable material available. They were like, can we actually just, like, put a fire on them? She was basically saved through seven different blood transfusions. Oh, my. And after a very long recovery... She had to learn how to eat sitting up all over again. She was so accustomed to eating while lying on her stomach. And that she was expected to be as good as new in time, although one burn three years after still had not completely healed. Wow. So at 15, she got to walk around on New Year's Day. Go Betty Jean, you're a girl. Go Betty Jean. So I hope that she got to live a very long and very happy life after all that. Me too. All right, I have uh, also a little bit of a good news kind of tale. Uh, this farmer was lucky. Fort Worth, Texas. For, su- for several years, W.T. Meade, a farmer of Brown County, has been digging for buried Spanish treasure on his farm. He uncovered a pot at the root of a big oak tree containing $2,000 worth of old Spanish coins. The trees in the vicinity are marked with hieroglyphics. The treasure found was evidently hidden there by Mexicans, as it consists wholly of Spanish coins, most of which were minted more than 100 years ago. Mead says he believes other treasure is buried there, and he will continue the search. So, listeners, if you're in Fort Worth, Texas, and you can find this this farm and dig, you can, you can send us as many coins as you want in thanks for letting you know about the buried treasure. As many coins as you want. Uh, there's no limit, actually. No limit. All right, uh, I have a little blurb here just to piss you off. <laughs> I've got one of those too. <laughs> All right. So the question, basically a reporter would, would go around and ask questions to random people on the street. This was like a gig that the, the New York Daily News used to do. Yes, the inquiring photographer. Yes. <laughs> I haven't spent too much time in the Daily News. What are you talking about? Yes. So <laughs> It's right next to Doris Blake, usually. It is. And Doris Blake, I also have one of those just to piss you off here, too. <laughs> I have no life. <laughs> okay, go This ahead. is what we do with our free time, guys. It really is. So... In a movie theater, do you prefer ushers or usherettes, and why? Right? Okay. So you know that this is going to be a a fun question. Raymond D. Ryan, Lake Placid Hotel Man. Ushers, when I go to a movie theater, my main concern is to get a seat as quickly as possible with the minimum of annoyance. I've found from experience that ushers are much more efficient in handling the large crowds that go to the movies. Furthermore, I don't like to take orders from women. Uh-huh. Yes. I am so glad that you are probably dead. <laughs> okay, so uh, mine is more of a... Uh, it's not quite... It's more of an article, so it's longer, but... This is in Ellsworth, Wisconsin, and by the way, this was in 1907. Michael Leo, alias Joe Saragusa, a member of an Italian railroad crew who was recently convicted of the murder of John Isaac at Prescott, Wisconsin, but who was discharged by the court, has confessed here that he murdered Marie Librizzi in New York on the night of May 27, 1902, and then cut up her body. Leo was arrested on suspicion by Sheriff Nugent of this county, 
Nugent. Sheriff Ted Nugent. That's, I was thinking it. <laughs> I've also got a Bieber somewhere in here, so that's fun. Um, the sheriff immediately wired the New York Police Department and received instructions to hold the man until the arrival of detectives. Sher uh, a couple of sergeants, uh, they arrived and fully identified Saragusa as Michael Leo, the murderer of Marie Labrizzi. He again made a full confession of the New York crime. He said he had spent lots of money on the girl. I paid her way to this country. She promised to marry me. She went with some other fellow. I told her she had to marry me. Then she said she did not know me. Then I killed her. Then I cut her up. Oh, my. The arrest came about in a peculiar way. At the time of the arrest... At the time of the arrest of the 22 Italians implicated in the murder of John Isaac at Prescott, Wisconsin... I think we need to take a look at that. <laughs> Sheriff Nugent caused a group photograph to be taken of the men. This was reproduced in Chicago and New York papers. Mrs. Miss Anna Larger, who lives in Chicago and who is a cousin of the murdered girl thought she recognized Leo among the number. She wrote to Sheriff Nugent here, asking if he had a prisoner of that name, and on receiving a negative reply, had the picture of the suspect enlarged and sent it to New York, where it was identified. The New York authorities have taken their prisoner back with them. Okay. Uh, Two-knife woman amok in hospital. <laughs> Visitors and heart disease patients in Kings County Hospital were panic-stricken yesterday when Mrs. Cecilia Dushi... <laughs> 50, ran with two open jackknives through cardiac ward C12. Mrs. Dushi, a cardiac patient, admitted last November went berserk as a nurse and intern were making their rounds. She tossed a proffered glass of medicine in the nurse's face, according to the hospital authorities, then leapt from bed and lunged at the intern and nurse with two weapons that she had secreted under a mattress. As the two o'clock gong sounded, visitors began streaming into the ward on the second floor of the main building. They ran out screaming as the woman raced about with a knife in either hand until hospital police subdued her. Hospital authorities refused to name the nurse and intern involved. They said they believed Mrs. Dushi would prefer to be at her home at 1950 60th Street, Brooklyn, and relatives were said to be planning to remove her. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Can't say I blame them. Uh, a funny name here, considering. Uh, this is titled, His Escape from Death Miraculous. Joe Grave has just returned to his home in this city from Cheyenne, Wyoming, where two months ago he most miraculously escaped being killed by a fast passenger train on the Union Pacific Railroad. Grave, oh, this is hard to read, he took a job as a brakeman, having been similarly employed in this city. He had not been working long when one evening, about dusk, his freight train took aiding to await the passing of a flyer. Her, his, sorry, his freight train took siding. <sighs> Graves started to the rear of the train to get his lantern. When he got there, he learned that the conductor had taken the lantern and gone to the front of the trains. He started to overtake him, walking up the main track. Hearing the flyer approach, he jumped from the track, but in doing so, stumbled over a pile of scrap iron and was thrown directly in front of the rapidly approaching train. Before he could crawl out of its path, he was struck and thrown several feet. He did not regain consciousness until three days afterward when he recovered to find himself in the hospital. He was in the hospital for two months, suffering great pain much of the time. Grave bears a long scar at the base of his skull. Railroad men who were with Grave at the time of the accident marveled that he escaped being uh, instantly killed. His splendid physique is all that saved him. Grave is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Vernon Grave. 
the florists. I like how that ends. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell you a little tale here about a family, some family drama, if Ooh. you will. Running to aid her father when her young brother-in-law attacked him with a sword cane, Virginia Ryan, 27, was stabbed near the heart and slashed across the face in her apartment at 305 West 98th Street yesterday. Okay, can I just say, as somebody who recently required a cane to get around, either a sword cane was my dream, or I saw a lady downtown who had a bedazzled cane. Oh, why not both? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not both? My Bedazzled sword cane sword should cane. be fancy. It should be. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm down with it. The youth, Bruce Rankin, 22, son of a businessman living at nearby 801 West End Avenue, had entered the apartment to demand information about his wife, Jeanette, 21, Virginia's sister. They had separated after a New Year's quarrel. According to police, Rankin unsheathed the 26-inch sword at the apartment door, hid the blade under his coat, and entered. Where is my wife? he demanded. Virginia's father, Thomas V. Ryan, a civil engineer, told him Jeanette was staying with friends. I turned my back to my breakfast, Ryan said, and Rankin suddenly lunged at me with the sword. It struck me in the back. I got to my feet and he kept swinging the sword at me. Virginia ran in to help me, and he turned on her. She was stabbed in the breast an inch or so from her heart and slashed across her face. Doctors said Miss Ryan had a close escape from death but permitted her to remain under nurse's care at home. When patrolman James Kelly of West 100th Street Station arrived in the apartment, he said he met Rankin, who was muttering, Self-defense! Self-defense! On a charge of felonious assault, Rankin was held for $7,500 bail and for possessing the sword, an additional $1,000. The sword was bent almost circular during the struggle. Holy shit! I thought that was kind of neat. And everybody lived. Hooray! Hooray! And I've just added sword cane to my list of things to look up on newspapers.com. There you go. (laughs) Um, Okay. Charges against Mayor. Huntington, Indiana. Charges have been filed with city clerk J.C. Bieber. There you go. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Biebs, what were you doing in 1907? Uh, against Mayor D.C. Anderson for the consideration of the Huntington Common Council at its meeting. The mayor is charged with public intoxication December 22nd, 23rd, and 24th following a trip t- to Washington, D.C. on a political mission, returning by way of Indianapolis, where he met with old friends. The charges are filed by Amos Klein, an ex-policeman who was discharged from city service a few months ago. Hmm. I'm going to tell you about the uh, death of an actress. Yeah, okay. Los Angeles. Dr. A.F. Wagner, chief autopsy surgeon today, said the death of Mrs. Villalee Goddard, 38, of Las Vegas, cousin of Rochelle Hudson, film actress, was suicide. Detective R.L. Veet... I'm getting really tired of these abbreviations here, guys. <laughs> it's same. Detective Veet said it was possible for Mrs. Goddard to have shot herself twice in the chest and then in the head. Oh, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that sounds so possible. Um, her husband, George A. Goddard, 47, wealthy New Mexico lumber dealer, was detained until the investigation was made. 
The body of Mrs. Goddard was found on the floor of her apartment Saturday. Goddard, I'm assuming Mr. Goddard, said she suffered a nervous breakdown last year and was confined to a Denver sanitarium. So obviously, because uh, she had a nervous breakdown, she must have committed suicide by shooting herself three times. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. I buy it. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> I feel like this investigation should have been a little more thorough. Just a little bit. Just a tad. I'm going to tell you how to walk upstairs. Oh, okay. I need to know this. You, uh, yes, absolutely. Perhaps it has never occurred to the boys and girls that there is a good way and a bad way to walk upstairs. The fuck? Hear what a well-known physician says about it. <laughs> Don't do it backwards, guys. <laughs> Don't do it with your sword cane out. Yeah. There are a few persons who know how to walk upstairs properly. Usually a person will tread on the ball of his foot in taking each step, springing himself up to the next step. This is not only tiresome, but is wearing on the muscles, as it throws the entire suspended weight of the body on the legs and the feet. In walking upstairs, the feet should be placed squarely down on the step, heel and all, and then the ascent should be made without hurry. In this way, there will be no strain on any particular muscle, but each will do its work in a natural manner. You're still using your feet and your legs. Like, I was really expecting him to be like, go up on all fours, guys. <laughs> You're straining your knees. Just make sure you use some arms, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just... Thank you, old-timey newspapers. The way that he describes it, the proper way to walk upstairs, does that sound like stomping to you? Slowly stomping up the stairs? Kind of, kind of. I think we all should do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you something else that seems really stupid. Okay. So, Point Pleasant, New Jersey. Paul Clark, 14-year-old Bayhead youth who was saved from death by uh, watermelon juice. Uh, sure. Okay. Was discharged from Point Pleasant Hospital today while on his way to recovery. Paul was brought to the hospital early in December in critical condition from nephritis, a kidney ailment. Physicians recalled that a Philadelphia child suffering from the same ailment had been helped by the watermelon extract. They broadcast a radio plea for the out-of-season fruit. Within a half hour, a melon was brought to the hospital by a nearby resident. Today, hospital authorities said, Paul can go home now. We believe he will recover. Watermelon juice saved him? Watermelon extract is how they said it, but they needed a watermelon. Sure, okay. This makes zero fucking sense to me. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a medical professional in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, for sure that it's not going to work, but considering that it's the old-timey doctors, I'm going to say that's probably really stupid and, and useless. Yeah. <laughs> watermelon. That is. Watermelon. Interesting. Um, this is an article, winner of tip prize. So this newspaper had an offering for, you know, if you, you called in a tip to the newspaper of news going on, okay. get a little prize. The woman who tipped off the palladium to the traumatic suicide of Mrs. William Keefe at College Corner will please call up this office and give her name to the cashier in order that she may be sent a check for her piece of news. It was by long odds the best story of the past week. In College Corner not being a town filled with newspaper correspondence, the palladium was able to give the first news of the affair. 
Although not often the case, the Palladium handled the story before it got on the publisher's press and associated wires. In cases of such tips, the tip editor almost feels like doubling the prize. But on second thought, guesses he will not. That's so gross. And also, do you think it was the, the woman that killed herself that called in the tip? Um, I mean, judging by the, the, the biological abilities of people in stories we've told today, yes, I would have to assume so. Yeah. Actually, she um, walked into the store of her lover. They were both married and uh, shot herself in the chest. Uh, and they said uh, she had, you know, the gun had more bullets in it. So they thought that she had meant to kill him and, and just decided to kill herself instead. And I was like, I mean, nobody loads a gun with just one bullet. You know, it doesn't matter True. what you're planning. If you're, if you're only planning on, on shooting one, nobody loads a gun with just one bullet. Well, and maybe you have to shoot yourself three times. You might just. So anyway... Wins divorce on dog's evidence. <laughs> Seattle. Evidence found by a pet dog was used today by Mrs. Ida de Kirby Paget in obtaining a divorce from Claude Oliver Paget, accountant. Mrs. Paget, I, I don't care if it's French, it's Paget now, uh, testified that her pet dog romped in one day with a letter beginning, My Darling, and signed Gladys, which had fallen from her husband's pocket. Superior Judge Calvin S. Hall admitted the evidence and granted Mrs. Paget petition for divorce. Huh. Because the dog was like, hey, hey, mom, hey, mom, look, I got a letter for you. I brought you the mail. <laughs> Good boy. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest wildest and most shocking old-timey crime that's patreon.com slash old-timey crimey where's the link in the show notes <laughs> i knew i was not gonna get through nutting day without giggling this was a, an interesting uh, legislative action that was being uh, attempting so they were taped, attempting to make here in our own state of pennsylvania Representative Josiah M. Landis of the 3rd Montgomery Legislative District in Pennsylvania is called upon to introduce a unique piece of legislation for the attention of the present assembly. The bill requested, according to the Hatfield Times, provides for a curfew law for young men who overstay their welcome when paying a visit to the maidens of their choice. The request comes from a constituent in the form of a letter reading as follows. So this is the letter from the young woman who is asking for this law. I have noticed that you have been instrumental in getting up, the common, getting up for the common good. 
I trust you will be indulgent and pardon the great liberty I take in addressing you, but I want to suggest a bill that will do an awful lot of good not only to myself, but to a lot of other girls. I have a gentleman friend whom I love very dear dearly, but he don't know when to go home. Everything else I ask him he complies with, but when I ask him if he does not think it is time to go home, he says he does not want to be away from me for a single minute. Sometimes it takes him over an hour to kiss me good night. When my papa spoke to him about it, he laughed and said he'd bet he did the same when he was courting my mama, and papa laughed and said he supposed he did. I don't know what to do about it and thought you could help me. Can't you have a law passed making young men callers go home before midnight? Say you fix the hour at eleven. If you do this, you will ever so much oblige me. Yours very truly. The article ends by telling us the attitude of the bachelor members of the legislature on this bill is watched with interest. Okay. She she really loves this gentleman friend, but come midnight she's like, I I need my me time. Dude, split. Get out. Go away. <laughs> Take the hint. Uh, well, and, and things like that end up like this. Keep slain wife in car, sells candy. What? In- interesting progression of events. Uh, that's, well, it starts out cute and courty, and then it ends up with uh, cars and candy. Okay. So this is in Colorado. A candy salesman who killed his wife and carried her body in his car while he called on customers insisted tonight that he fired the fatal bullet in self-defense. After Everett Hughes, a dignified, friendly man who had the reputation of being a good salesman, confessed to the sheriff, he led officers to a grave beside a highway where he had buried his wife's body under two feet of frozen earth. Mrs. Hughes was a fiction writer and poet. Letters which Hughes wrote to his son Ralph, who lives in Denver, provided the clues which first put officials on the salesman trail. The letters were signed with Mrs. Hughes' name, but contained many misspellings. Hmm. Young Hughes told Sheriff Lewis of his suspicion, and the investigation turned up pieces of burned clothing and blood spots on a chair in the Hughes Pueblo home. Hughes said the killing occurred nine days ago during a quarrel over a $1,500 legacy which he had received from a relative in the East. He asserted Mrs. Hughes demanded the money as a property settlement. She pointed a revolver at me, he said, and I got a rifle and shot her through the head. That escalated quickly. (laughs) Hughes said that the killing occurred at 10.30 p.m. and that he immediately wrapped the body in a blanket and tied it with a clothesline. Next morning, he put it in his automobile and started on his candy route. He made calls on several customers and then decided to bury the body because it bothered me. One would hope, I guess. That... Candy salesman, eh? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have candy a candy man. Candy man. Oh my god. He's the candy <laughs> the man. Candy man. Because the candy man can. Uh, I have a, a story of a car too. Uh, this is headline is hadn't learned her machine. Oh. And this was actually on April first. Miss E. S. Loveland, a niece of the late Collis P. Huntington and a beneficiary under his will, was instantly killed Sunday while operating a new automobile. In attempting to turn around, Mrs. Loveland unintentionally turned on full power, and the car shot across the sidewalk and plunged over a stone wall that crowns a 20-foot embankment. Oh, my. Mrs. Loveland was thrown from the car, and her neck was broken. Oh, my. All right. Um, 
I, I'm going to, uh, to give you some more bad luck, I suppose. Rockford, Illinois. To get money for a gay fling, a Rockford youth, aided by a young accomplice, killed his grandfather in a $43 robbery last week. Ugh. Unaware that the aged man had made him the sole heir to an estate worth more than $10,000. Dumbass. The youths, Gordon Malm, 19, the grandson, and D. Wayne Montgomery, 16, were being brought here tonight from Iowa where their pleasure-bound flight was interrupted by police. They were quoted as having confessed an attack on Malm's grandfather, Martin Pearson, 82, who lived alone here, but they insisted they did not know he had died. They face murder charges. I'm, I'm curious if there's more to that. The headline was, heir to $10,000 kills kin for 43. Set that paper aside because I want to look into that one. It's a good one. Is there, okay, yeah, here it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just ignore me. Um, here is um, something that happened in Russia. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the headline after I tell the story. Um, it's in Kursk, Russia, in 1907. Druzanimov, an ex-policeman who was sentenced February 21st to a year's imprisonment for torturing peasant, peasants during a punitive expedition, has been killed by peasant prisoners in the jail here. They captured him and held a regular court and executed him by dashing out his brains against the floor. Oh. And the headline of the article is, Executed Their Own Judgment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. All right, this is a longer one, so I apologize, but the headline really grabbed me. Child wife, soon a mother, learns mate is bigamist. Um, There's a lot to unpack in that headline. There is so much. So I, of course, had to. So this is Columbus, Ohio. Mrs. Anna Mae Hunt, 17, will never forget the first Wednesday of 1938 as long as she lives. For on that day, she received a letter which brought the world crashing down. Until the postman came that day, the child wife was completely happy. She was busy knitting little garments as she had a date with a stork in February. She was thinking the while, the while of her tall husband, Friedman Hunt, 22, whose lazy drawl he'd brought with him from the White River country in Arkansas. It was a drawl that captivated her when she met him on Christmas Day, 1936, and married him within the week. Then Uncle Sam's blue-coated messenger deposited a letter in the box. It was addressed to her in a woman's hand, a handwriting that was unfamiliar, and from Arkansas. Probably from the mother-in-law she had never seen, Anna Mae mused. The letter, Hot Springs, Arkansas, January 3rd. Dear Mrs. Hunt, We'll write you a letter to say I guess you will be surprised to hear from someone you never heard of, but I just got news December 25th that you and Friedman were married. I just thought that I would tell you that he is my husband, and also we have two children, and he and I do not have a divorce. I am asking this much of you. Please now, while the time is good, tell him to send $30.50 to pay for the divorce, and I will send him a copy of the decree so it will save you and him all this trouble up there. If I don't hear from you and Friedman within five days, I am turning this over to the officers there where you are at once. You don't know Friedman as well as I do. He will live with the girl long enough to have two or three children and he will leave her just like he has left me. He just walked off, left me with a little two weeks old baby. He did not leave me with a bite of anything to eat. 
You see what he will do. So please tell him to get busy and send the money. I also heard that you are going to be a mother soon. Hope he doesn't do you like he did me and my babies. I wrote him a letter the 30th of December. I will wait a few more days yet, and if I don't hear, I will see what other plan I can make. I went to my mother-in-law's house Christmas. She gave me his address, so I will close, hoping to hear soon. I will enclose some pictures of Friedman, myself, and our babies. Hmm. Mrs. Ruby Hunt and babies. <clears throat> Anime Hunt examined the pictures. She examined that of their husband first. It was the same man. Then she scanned the features of the children carefully. There was no doubt about it. The features of the older child were an exact replica of her husband's. An older sister took Anna Mae Hunt to juvenile court. The case is turned over to the assistant prosecutor, Henry Holden. If the wife's story were true, he declared it was a clear case of bigamy. Or Hunt, both marriages and no divorce. Could be charged with bastardy. 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 Or contributing to the delinquency of Anna Mae Hunt as she's a minor. How old? 17. <sighs> That's why she's a child bride. Hunt was taken from a bench in a factory where he was employed and jailed. At first he admitted, then he denied it, and said he wouldn't talk further until he'd seen a lawyer. Contacted by Hot Springs Police, Mrs. Ruby Hunt supplied further details. She said she married Hunt at Bismarck, Arkansas on September 3, 1932. Reverend Robert Burroughs performing the ceremony two weeks after the birth of their second child, July 14, 1936. Hunt disappeared, and less than six months later, he married Anna May in Columbus. Prosecutor Holden is holding Hunt in the county jail pending a decision on the nature of charges to be filed. Wowza! Yeah. It's a hell of a story. And I, I like the grace in which she wrote that letter. Yeah, absolutely. That was, you're right. It was very, it was gracious. It was a very gracious letter from somebody who was in a position to, you know, you would excuse her for not being gracious because of the situation. But I think she realizes, you know, this is just another innocent girl that he's, you know, yeah. taken in with his charm or whatever. She's basically like, look, I'm sure you're going to be real surprised to hear from me. And I'm sorry about that. Make him send me money so that I can get a divorce and you guys can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm also just going to warn you that this is how he did me. Hopefully he does you a little bit better than that. But I would not be surprised if he <laughs> takes off maybe secret a little money away. All right. That's, that's a, an Peace excellent out. summary. I love it. <laughs> Good luck, homie. Girl's wit foils robbers. Ooh. Richmond, Indiana. Through the bravery and quick wit of Miss Ida Lamb, the telephone operator in the village of Economy, three robbers were put to flight, and the pillaging of several stores and the post office perhaps pre prevented. Miss Lamb heard the robbers break in the front window of Frank Bly's drugstore, and she awakened a number of her patrons. She con conducted the organization of a posse over the telephone, and when the villagers were well-armed and ready, they marched to the drugstore. The robbers, hearing their approach, fled and escaped the scattering of discharges, scattering discharges of shot that followed them. So she gathered up a posse with the phone. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I just have a real quick picture for you that you can hang up in, in the studio. Um, because I was not expecting this. The, the headline is, How to Relax. And it is a row of women with their faces on the ground and their butts in the air. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's something. That's definitely something. And uh, then it says that they were introducing exercises for working girls. 
<laughs> Designed to show them how to relax after a period of toil. Here is a group in a preliminary posture. Face down, ass up. That's the way I like to relax. <laughs> it's, it's got a little aspect of like child's pose from yoga. Maybe, maybe. But not fully. Like, they're, yeah, they're, their arms would be, I think, uh, down next to their legs instead. Yeah, this is, this is... Um, Which actually is a relaxing pose. But that doesn't look as comfortable. This, yeah. Um, to me, this looks like, hey, husband. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's our anniversary. Uh, I'm relaxing. Do you want to help me uh, <laughs> Relax. This is uh, to reform husbands. Oh, plan of Chicago justice proves highly successful. Judge Cleland, uh, assisted by a committee of businessmen, watch closely the men paroled and they are fined or imprisoned for again misbehaving. Municipal judge, municipal court judge Mackenzie Cleland of Chicago has a plan to reform husbands. With several thousand Chicago women, Judge Cleland believes the genus husband generally is in a bad state of repair. And regarding a number of husbands who have their homes in the district centering around the Maxwell Street Police Court, Chicago, he knows this to be the case. Hundreds of representative business and professional men on the west side of the city hold the same view. And now that Judge Cleland has prom promulgated his reform ideas, they have volunteered their hearty cooperation. Okay, all right. Sorry, this is longer than I thought. While Judge Cleland believes that nearly all husbands are in need of reform, his scheme can be applied only to those who find their way into the Maxwell Street branch of the municipal court. Of these, at least 100 already have been benefited by the scheme, and the reform treatment will be applied to others as fast as they are brought into the court. In only a few instances has the plan failed to work, and then only because the husbands on which it was tried were so far gone that no treatment could bring them back into the path of domestic rectitude. All right, so basically... I want to know what this reform is, and then I want to try it. it here it is. Uh, it is subject to modification, is to arrest, fine, and with the fine suspended over their heads, parole those husbands who show themselves in need of reform. Husbands thus arrested and paroled are watched closely by the judge and the committee of businessmen, and everything possible is done to encourage them in their efforts to live up to the requirements of their parole. Paroled men are visited at least once a week at the home by one of the committee of businessmen, and notes are taken as to their progress. Every two weeks, Judge Cleland holds a night session of his court at which all the paroled husbands are required to report and where evidence is heard regarding their conduct while on parole. If these reports are satisfactory, the case against them is not removed from the books, but is continued two weeks longer when they are required to report again. The continuing of cases and calling for bi-weekly reports are kept up until the paroled husband shows signs of permanent reform. When the suspended fine is removed and he is restored to his family, a different and in most cases a completely reformed man. Occasionally a husband has been found who took advantage of the parole system started by Judge Cleland, whom he regarded as an easy mark. And once released, without having been sent to the bridewell, the husband in these instances drifted back to the old paths of the unreformed. One man who did this was promptly rearrested, and on his failure to promise better behavior was sent to the Bridewell to work out a maximum fine of $85 and the costs of prosecuting the case against him. It never specifies what exactly the husband's crimes are. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm really confused. This is very, like, bland and... Uh, Vague. 
super vague. Yeah. Like, are they beating their wives? Or are, are they drinking too much? Are, are we talking about men who abandoned their families? Yeah, like I did don't... they Did they commit bastardy? Bastardy. Bastardy is actually, uh, I believe, the correct pronunciation. Ah, no, no, speaking of bastards, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. Ah, this is from our lovely Miss Doris Blake. Oh, yay. So this is the wife writing in. I have a serious problem on which I court your aid. I was 17 and my husband 19 when we married 22 years ago. For years, he was everything a woman could ask of her husband and a perfect father. He still is a good father and the youngsters, now pretty well grown, care for him deeply. But for seven years, he has been interested in another woman who was a friend of the family in years past. She also was married and is the mother of one son. Time and again, my man has promised to give up this affair, which has continued steadily through the years. I cannot understand the hold that woman has on him. She is not good looking. She doesn't seem to have any more brains than I have. (laughs) I have tried to figure out how the thing ever started. My husband and I never quarreled. Now, about a year ago, a widower who has been close to our little family for years, has openly petitioned me to get a divorce from my husband and marry him. He is a good man. He has considerable property. So I would have a good home. But again, the children urge me to keep on trying to get my husband to do the right thing by us all. What is your honest opinion? Our honest opinion is that you would be committing a great folly to step out of your present environment for a place beside another man. All right, hold up. (laughs) Amber has some things to say She is basically like Look, my husband has been having an affair That I'm aware of For the last seven years The kids are aware of it And now I have A man who has money Who wants me to marry him And he's not Having an affair because his wife is dead and she's like, don't do that. You would be giving up your family. I'm, this man has already given up his family. He gave it up seven years ago. Seven years ago he gave it up when he started nailing the family front. So in my opinion, yeah, go with the guy with huge property. <laughs> huge tracts of land. <laughs> huge tracts of land. Um, and then she goes on to say, our observation is that often when women have suffered your problem and have remained, they live to thank heaven they did just that. No, the only time you're thanking anything is that you've upped the life insurance every year until you killed his ass. <laughs> just my take on it. I'm with you. Um, this is actually um, kind of a, a short crimey story. I have, I have three different articles here about uh, a crime that occurred that was pretty, I'd say, I'm assuming pretty unique for the day. All right. All right. So, Schenectady, New York. This was 1907. Daniel Miller was mortally injured tonight by an infernal machine, which was sent to him by Express. The infernal machine came from North Adams, Massachusetts, and was delivered to Mr. Miller's lodgings within a stone's throw of police headquarters this afternoon. It was not opened by Miller until he got home this evening at about 6.45. An instant later, there was a terrible explosion, and other lodgers rushed to Mr. Miller's room and found him laying on the floor, his face and body frightfully burned and mangled, his body being stripped of clothing. One eye was torn out, and the entire lower portion of the trunk was blown away, exposing the intestines. 
The room was filled with, so I'm thinking infernal machine is like a, a, a bomb. Okay, could be, yeah. So this is like a mail bomb. Definitely something, Jesus. The room was filled with smoke, but fortunately nothing caught fire. Several physicians were hastily summoned. The victim was taken to a hospital where it was said that he could not possibly live. Chief of Police Rainex and detectives are investigating the affair. The victim is 27 years old and is a machinist. He was to be married in June. Miller's, uh, this is in April, so. Miller's brother said tonight that Dan has no enemies and no one who is known to him lives in North Adams. So then they think that maybe they figured out who it is. As this is two days later. Daniel Miller, who was hor horribly mutilated by an infernal machine, alleged to have been sent to him by John Hallinan, a rival suitor, may recover from his injuries, but will probably be totally blind. Miss Bedard, the stenographer around whom the whole affair centers, admitted to the police yesterday that Hallinan has annoyed her and Miller some months and that she never encouraged a suit, and that on one occasion last summer, Miller assaulted the fellow for his persistence. The express package was forwarded from North Adams, Massachusetts, and Hallinan, who is now in custody, admits that he was in Troy two days ago. Hallinan this week removed his mustache and otherwise disguised himself before going to Troy. In Hallinan's room were found a variety of apparatus and batteries, such as were contained in the infernal machine which wounded Miller. Yeah, so I just looked that up. Just because I, I, oh, it's I Holman, figured you were actually. correct. I, maybe. A machine or apparatus maliciously designed to explode and destroy life or property. Okay. So a concealed or disguised bomb. There we go. And then July uh, of the same year, a jury in county court this afternoon acquitted John Hallinan, who was, oh, thank you, who was indicted for attempted murder and assault in the first degree, he was accused of sending an infernal machine to Daniel Miller. Miller was terribly injured by the explosion of the machine and is totally blind. But he lived. He did live. He survived the infernal machine. But did he get married to the stenographer? He didn't say. Uh, I, I hope so. I hope so too, but it yeah. doesn't sound like it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell you about a marriage, maybe marriage, not marriage. Okay. So, Ryan, to tell all about his wife for annulment. This is a wild tale, and I have, like, five pages on this, so I'm going to kind of give you, like, some of it I will read and some of it I will kind of do Cliff Notes version of. Um, so, maybe not quite so jittery as the morning two months ago when he woke up in a North Carolina hotel with a bride and a stepson, but making a gallant attempt to live up to past performances, Basil A. Pat Ryan... Yesterday voiced loud and emphatic New Year's resolutions. He is resolved, he bellowed, to tear into tiny shreds the reputation of his blonde 21-year-old Mrs. Sorry, it went on a different page. I didn't expect that. <laughs> when his suit for annulment of his corn liquor marriage comes up in Mor Morgantown, North Carolina in the near future. Apparently, not so much of the chivalry of the Old South has rubbed off on the grandson of the late Thomas Fortune Ryan, despite his sojourn down in the land where the magnolia blooms. After a long tirade against the former Martha Barkley, who he charged got him plastered to his aristocratic ears on pot still and then dragged him before a justice of the peace, he shouted, They've got that young fellow Ned Parks, you know, the one Martha says is the father of her baby, Coming up in a few days, she's suing him for support. 
Well, the hell with Parks. I won't need him. I will prove in my suit that Martha had other lovers besides Parks, and I'm not including myself. Pat, who has been giving... <laughs> so, basically, this, this young woman married Pat Ryan, but had a very young baby with this Ned Parks. So she's suing him for paternity, and she was married to Pat Ryan. And Pat Ryan is like, I never married her intentionally. I was drunk as a skunk when all this happened. <laughs> a corn liquor marriage. I like that. So they are basically just trying to, like, tear her apart. But then the reporters are hilarious, right? So he obviously doesn't sound like a, a great guy to start with. But they say, Pat, who has been giving New York the pleasure of his company since his release from the hospital in North Carolina, where he spent nearly two weeks recovering from too much corn in an overdose of romance, <laughs> had a New Year's appointment to meet a news reporter. She arrived at his floor in the Hotel Shelton, Lexington Avenue, in time to see him and a large young woman, Amazonian in stature, getting into a down-going elevator. The reporter, who never counts time when sacred duty is involved, waited for his return. About an hour later, Pat came back, but this time his companion was a young woman as diminutive as the outgoing one had been big. Pat did not explain the midday shift. Instead, <laughs> so basically the reporter's like, he left with one lady, and then he came back with another lady. And then he hit on the reporter. <laughs> oh, Pat. So poor Martha, who is described as being very attractive, had a four-month-old baby boy, and um, Ryan thinks that he, tr like, she tricked him into this marriage, but I, I don't know about that. I don't <laughs> think I'd want to be married to this guy. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> At all. And so then he uh, convinces the reporters to go to the bar with him during this interview, and there's a bunch of that. And while at the bar is trying to convince the female reporter to stay with him for a little while longer, which was hilarious because they actually did quote him in this. So first he talks about how, um, because the, the judge that married them is like, no, he was sober. And he goes, the reason maybe those witnesses in the justice of the peace say I was sober was that they really meant what they said. You see, I can hold my liquor. I can be stiff as a goat, and nobody will know it. Not even me. But I've got a doctor who will testify I was completely fried that night. <laughs> that is... Wow. <laughs> and um, let me get to the part where he, he starts uh, talking about the reporter. Oh, my God. All right. Ryan was asked if he would have tried to make a go of his marriage if things had been different. Would you have stuck with Martha if you hadn't learned she had been a, uh, indiscreet? Asked the reporter, who is the soul of delicacy. Don't you think she's attractive? Attractive hell, he exploded. She's terrible. Then fixing an eye on your, uh, upon your hired girl, he added, she's younger and better looking than you, but not half as entertaining. I like you better, talking <laughs> to the reporter. Oh, Mr. Ryan, <laughs> do you really mean that? Yes, I do, said Pat, but then he became cagey. But listen, young woman, he added, I'm not going to make love to you, or at least not very much. 
I'm in love with a very beautiful girl who lives in Poughkeepsie. Her name is Jeanette, Jeanette Lum, and I will marry her someday. That is, if she will have me. In an interview at the Hickory Hospital, Pat said the only love of his life was the former Jean Cochran, daughter of the socially prominent. Wow. Yeah, so he basically just kept going, and they're, they're drinking as they're doing this interview. So then he starts talking about how he's, he's a great athlete, and he doesn't have a single hair on his body, and he's totally willing to show the reporter that if she needs proof. Oh, my God. Then he starts talking about how he's a cow hand, and he can roll his own cigarettes while he's busting Bronx. Then starts talking about the gloves his mother gave him for Christmas. This whole thing just gets unhinged, and it's amazing. But then he, he ends it basically by saying, my family can't get mixed up in this because of the Ryan name. The Ryan name must be protected at all costs, but my family is giving me its moral support. I know it won't give Martha a nickel, and she certainly can't sue me for support of the baby because it's not my baby. So basically, I think he, he got hammered. He met a pretty girl. He married her, and then his family's like, you can't be married to that girl. She's a nobody. And so he went off. But I have a picture of him. Oh, boy. He is spanking a bottle of hooch. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course he is. Yes, yes. So he seems like just a fucking dreamboat, doesn't he? (laughs) He has a definite douchey look. He is spanking a bottle of corn liquor (laughs) in his picture. He was like, hey, guys, take a picture of this. I got this. This is going to be great. That's beautiful. Because he swore off drinks, mind you. At the beginning of the interview, and then he took the interview to the bar. Of course. So I just wanted to uh, tell you that lovely story. Thank you for introducing the world to Pat Ryan. You've done a good service. (laughs) Right. So he is off the chain, but there was a little follow-up. So this was all over the news, actually. Um, So Ned Parks actually did come to New York and agreed to, to pay whatever to Martha. So that was fine, because at first he was like, no, I'm going to join this guy. And he's like, this guy's an asshole. Never mind. I'm just going to pay support. I'm sorry. My bad. Cool. Me and Martha were cool. Like, <laughs> poor wow. Martha. Poor, poor Martha. Martha. Um, I don't normally take uh, suicide stories from the newspapers. This one was a little too, um, raised, raised some questions. And I, I, so I, I felt I should bring this here. Oh, you mean like the, the woman that shot herself three yeah, times? But, yeah, but also, also kind of no, but yes. Um, Andrew Dietz and his brother Silas have been inmates of the state hospital here for over four years, being committed from Ulster County. Both were trustees and were not locked in their rooms. Andrew, who was about 50, went into the room of Silas and all night long coaxed his brother to commit suicide with him. Toward morning, he agreed to put off the deed until next night. Shortly afterward, however, he went to the toilet room, filled a small pail with water, and placed it alongside his bed. He then threw himself across the bed with his head hanging down in the pail and slowly suffocated. You know how difficult it would be to drown yourself? That's, the the body fights that. (laughs) Like, self-preservation kicks in. That would be insanely difficult, like, a really, really difficult way to do it. Props. Though, but also not suicide. That does not sound like suicide. Your body wouldn't allow you to do that. It's very, like I said, it raises questions. It does raise questions. (laughs) Like, 
I don't think you could do that. Like if you stuck your feet in the bucket and then dropped a toaster in it, sure. But to just drown your drown yourself in a bucket? Yeah, right? I mean, like I don't think you could. I don't think you could either. I love those articles that raise more questions than they answer. <laughs> and that's one of them. I, I did have an ad, actually, that raised questions for me. Uh, but also the picture made me giggle. Uh, so the, uh, the title of the ad, A Beautiful Bust for You. And this is like the super, super pointy cone bra that you see. And I'm like, oh my, hmm. I need to know. Don't be embarrassed by flat, scrawny, sagging, or over-large busts. And I don't know what this is. So this is the description here. Here is a positively guaranteed method for overcoming these ungainly figure faults. Let the famed authority, Paul Renard, show you how to acquire the form you always wanted, nature's way. Thousands have been helped by his method, which is endorsed by beauty experts everywhere. No creams, no gadgets, no harmful medicines or confining garments. Simple and easy to use. Brings quick, lasting results or no cost. Send no money. Just name and address. When postman arrives with your package in plain wrapper, deposit with him $1.88 plus few cents postage. Follow simple instructions for 10 days. If you are not more than satisfied with the results, send it back and your money will be immediately refunded. No questions asked. Nothing else to buy. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. Like, I thought maybe a bra, but they said, like, no restrictive garments. But I guess it could be they, they're saying this is not a restrictive garment. No creams, no gadgets, no medicines, no confining garments. Confining garments. I don't know what it is. I'm weirded out, intrigued, and also, like... How much money did the mailman have? Because <laughs> I feel like it would be really good to mug a mailman if this is how they would do things. You'd show up with a package and then you'd give the mailman the money. Because they'd be good to rob. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that wasn't already a gig. It should have been a gig. It should have been a gig. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure somebody must have done it at some point. I, I would almost hope so if they're collecting money door to door. There, there used to be a, a term for that. I can't remember what it was, but it would be like at the end of like... COD, it, cash on delivery. Cash on delivery, COD, thank you. Okay, yes. But it's been so long since that's been a thing that they don't even say it anymore. That used to be at the end of everything, like have your parents call 888, blue light, or whatever the hell it was. And, and like you would have to get an adult to order you fucking toys <laughs> from the TV. And it was always like... $9.99 plus shipping and handling, but you never knew what shipping and handling was because that shit was fucked. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been three bucks, could have been 20. Don't know. Um, this was um, when the Harry Thaw murder case, which we covered on this podcast ages and ages ago, uh, was going on. It seemed like there was a lot of chatter about it and some people didn't like that. So uh, bar on talk about Thaw. More signs were ordered recently from painting firms in Memphis, Tennessee, with the wording, No discussions of the Thaw case will be permitted in this store. Many merchants have such signs already displayed in their places of business. A fight which almost led to murder the other day between men who had argued the Thaw case 
is believed to have been responsible for efforts of Memphis merchants to bar such discussions. So they said you can't talk about the murder case here. All right. I've got a kind of a cute story, question mark. It's kind of sad to me. Ex-con gets chance to keep 1938 vow. Ex-convict Rudolf Himsen, 32, will get a chance to keep his New Year's vow never to commit another crime. He walked into the Brooklyn Poplar Station Saturday night, starving and penniless, and begged to be locked up before he was tempted to take what society would not let him earn. The record book does not give a pretty picture of Hyman's life. Himsen's life, my bad. I don't know why I went there. <laughs> it kind of, so it, there was like a... a it's newspaper writing, and so sometimes some of the letters get, like, whited out, and my brain sure. just immediately went to Hyman. I don't sure, know. Sure, sure. Hempson. Hempson. <laughs> God. All right. He has nine arrests and seven convictions against him since 1923. Recently, he finished a seven-year term at Sing Sing for attempted arson. I've done a lot of bad things, he admitted to Magistrate Jeanette Brill in Bay Bridge Court yesterday. But this New Year's, I decided to go straight. It wasn't an easy decision to make. I haven't had much chance to work since I got out of jail, and I didn't have a cent. I walked the streets for a long time until I couldn't stand the sight of people with money and windows full of food. Then I went to the police and asked them to put me in jail. Magistrate Brill paroled him for the hearing on January 8th on a charge of vagrancy, then gave him $2 and recommend that he be cared for by the Salvation Army. It is a shame that all doors should be closed for such men as these, she remarked. Hmm. Wow. But also, Magistrate, she. <laughs> nice. Yes. Excellent. And she gave him $2 and told him where to go for help. That, which I thought was really sweet and refreshing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you about the art of winking. Oh, I'm going to give you a recipe that's going to make you uh, do a winky face. Yay! I've got that. one of those for you, too. <laughs> Professor Sterling assures women it is more effective than tears. Professor Sterling has aroused some criticism in state society by glorifying the art of winking in a lecture on eyes at the London Institution, says a special cable dispatch. It requires, he says, veritable education to wink, although blinking is very simple. The effect is... <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with people? <laughs> I'm just going to hit my blinking, head on my tablet. Blinking is so easy, guys. Everyone can blink. But what you got to do is blink with one eye because then you are educated. <laughs> the effectiveness of fine eyes can be immeasurably enhanced by a really artistic and expressive wink. Half the beauty of Spanish women's eyes lies in their peculiar gift of half-closing them, conveying at will by fine gradations of the same act, either languorous love Fascinating invitation or withering fury. What the fuck? <laughs> so now a Spanish woman, too. Without their hereditary genius for utilizing their eyelids, Spanish women would lose half their charm. No, their charm is, is not in winking. <laughs> They've got lots of charms. It is a sixth sense to them. Our ancestresses oh relied upon tears in various sentimental emergencies. But it didn't catch on, and now women cry as rarely as men. 
if they devoted some of their time to the management of their eyelids that they waste on the Swedish drill and strumming the piano, they would be far better employed for their matrimonial prospects. <laughs> so, the message here is eyelids are very important and practice your winking. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's why eyeshadow is such a popular thing now. You pay tons of money for eyeshadow, maybe so you can just blink at people with one eye. Because that's how you let them know you have a college degree. <laughs> I one eye. am smart and talented. I can blink with one eye. My God. <laughs> what a genius that man was. Absolutely genius and unappreciated in his time. How dare they criticism Criticism him. How dare they criticize him? <laughs> I know that uh, that article made me dumber as well. <laughs> That's what happened. So I'm going to give you a recipe for pea soup cake. Oh my. So you need one can condensed pea soup, one egg beaten, one half cup milk, four tablespoons tomato ketchup, one cup bran, one half cup flour, Two teaspoons of baking powder, three slices of bacon cut small, uh, frying time until very brown, two tablespoons bacon fat, and then an oven baking time 12 to 15 minutes to make two dozen. You mix the soup in a bowl with the egg, milk, ketchup, bran, and sifted flour and baking powder. You fry the bacon until brown, add to the mixture with the bacon fat. Then you drop those on a greased baking sheet, allowing one tablespoon for each cake. Bake five minutes in a hot oven, then reduce heat to moderate and bake until crisp. Sprinkle with salt and serve hot. There is nothing in here aside from the bacon that sounds appetizing to me. Because you have pea soup. Yeah. Just you in general. Like there is never a time that I've been like, you know what I really want? Pea soup. Pea soup. You want to know why? No, because I've seen The Exorcist. I've seen it. <laughs> and that makes me never, ever, ever want to eat pea soup. Ever. Period. And then I'm going to mix it with ketchup, which, eh. <laughs> but then also, bran. So you're going to eat pea soup, bran, cake, and you're going to shit for a week, and it's going to be various shades of green. Why do... Okay, I'm done. But they got $5 for that recipe. <laughs> $5! The entire world has been robbed. Ugh. All right. Uh, this is actually, I, I put this in the, uh, our, our little group chat with uh, our gang. Um, this was actually from the 70s, but I saw it. Uh, somebody posted it in the old recipes subreddit. and You couldn't help yourself. I couldn't help myself. It is seafaring SpaghettiOs. It's, it's quite simple. Uh, what you want to get is you're going to get two cans of SpaghettiOs, one teaspoon dried parsley flakes, and one package of frozen fish sticks. An eight-inch square baking dish. Combine spaghetti and parsley flakes. Top with fish sticks. Bake at 400 for 25 minutes or until hot. Mix four servings. You can also create your own money-saving recipes by adding other foods, such as cheese, luncheon meats, franks, hard-cooked eggs, and leftover meats. Yum. So, also in the old recipes subreddit, somebody tried it. Oh, good. <laughs> was it Jackson? It was not Jackson. But he thought about it. Um, it was, uh, let me, 
Because I know that he has SpaghettiOs here. Great big poner. <laughs> Great big poner. Okay. Great big poner. And the original recipe was uh, provided by Bone of Contention. Those are the usernames. Okay, I really like the review of it, though. Uh, this tastes exactly how you'd imagine. It was surprisingly not bad. It also wasn't great. It was very much fish sticks on SpaghettiOs. Six out of ten, I've eaten way worse things. Edit, the dried parsley actually added a pleasant flavor and made it super fancy. Oh, fancy. <laughs> fancy, fancy. Uh, I was in hysterics that somebody did that. And I can show you a pictures. That... <laughs> <laughs> Yep, and here it is served, <sighs> served delicately in a kind of fancy bowl. So, like, look, guys, I have uh, trouble with processed foods because it's not food. <laughs> um, oh, you'll love that they uh, thought about adding American cheese to it. Oh, my God, that is not cheese. <laughs> it burns like a fucking candle. It's not cheese. It is a cheese-ish product. <laughs> it is a product. It, product. Is, it is a wax candle of just not food um i will say that once upon a time we went to a restaurant in town here that had uh lamb curry on the menu right and so obviously i uh, i'm interested i'm going to try this lamb curry now i know what curry tastes like but this curry was very obviously two ingredients that we all know very well mixed together one of those is spaghettios and the other is the pre-packaged taco seasoning. Huh. So their curry sauce was they put a fucking can of SpaghettiOs and a thing of taco seasoning into a blender and they called it curry. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever tried. Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> oh, it was bad, but you could very clearly taste those two ingredients. <laughs> and somebody called it curry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the last time I had SpaghettiOs, actually. <laughs> and it was in a curry sauce. Well, you didn't intend to have SpaghettiOs. I did not. I did not order <laughs> SpaghettiO sauce. But now, if you would all like to have that experience, you know how to make uh, really bad white people curry. I just have a feeling that Jackson's going to want to try that. It's, I would not recommend. He's my trash panda. I guess. He'll yes. eat anything and everything. I once walked into uh, his apartment the year we started dating, and he was, we've had this discussion before, but I don't think I've told it on the podcast, uh, drinking a jar of spaghetti. Because why dirty a spoon? I know that uh, our friends Beast and Joel have their own separate jars of spaghetti so that they don't drink after each other. Spaghetti. Uh, applesauce. Applesauce. It's applesauce. I was, I was really concerned that he had a, a jar of spaghetti. I'm like, he puts it in jars? I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. That one hit me hard. <laughs> it's good pain relief, though. My God, I'm like, barely any pain is awesome. I I, uh, I ninja'd my kids, though, speaking of, of spaghetti. So um, I had made spaghetti and meatballs last week, and they enjoyed it very much. And then this week, I made meatloaf. They did not enjoy it at all, because apparently the shape. And so I cut it up into, like, cubes, like very small cubes, and I tossed it with, uh, with red sauce. And I was like, it's spaghetti meatloaf. <laughs> and they, they heard meatballs and they ate it. So I was like, that works. Good enough. So we will not eat it in a loaf shape. If it is tossed in red sauce, it is delicious. 
go figure. Because of the shape. I love kids' excuses sometimes. Trick those little <laughs> bastards. <laughs> I like the shape. I have never once not eaten a food because of the shape. Well, I think because you can very clearly see the meat and yeah. it, that was bothersome. So if you coat it in a sauce, not a problem anymore. I was kind of grossed up by meat growing up. Well, like I loved meatloaf. Well, so my kids don't eat, like, they've never even had a cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. And that's probably crazy for a lot of people. They just won't eat it. Like, I don't know what it is about it, but they won't eat a burger. I can make them a turkey burger, and they have actually eaten a turkey burger. But they will not eat a beef burger at all. That is weird. Super hmm. weird. So I have to, like, hide it. So that they, I don't, I don't know. It's, I have weird kids. I don't know what to tell you. Each of us children in my family, uh, we each have a different meal that is our favorite, like most people, except uh, either all or most of us, our favorite meal has been um, the meal our mother ate the night before she gave birth. That is a whole ass thing. That yeah. was, um, uh, it was actually, mine was meatloaf. It was the meatloaf and mashed potatoes at a specific restaurant at the Pepper Mill in Warren. I can almost taste it right now. It's still the same. It's still the same as when I was a child. I don't know how they do that. Uh, they don't change anything. It's the same sh shipper. Uh, <laughs> I know, but that's, that's... Oh, man, their food supplier must have been in business for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> and they must have never changed cooks. <laughs> like, it's just amazing. So, like, and, and that is really a thing. So when you're pregnant, sometimes you get cravings that you can't control. And so when I was pregnant with Kennedy, specifically my, my middle daughter... Um, I craved watermelon. I'm allergic to watermelon. I craved a thing that every time I would eat, I would violently vomit. <laughs> but I craved it constantly. And so I would keep eating it and then throwing up. Oh. I don't know why this was. That kid fucking loves watermelon. <laughs> like, I just had to buy another one today. We just bought one like four days ago. She ate the whole damn watermelon. <laughs> that kid would probably kill a man for watermelon. <laughs> She's never going to be in the hospital with liver problems. Because she's full of watermelon extract. <laughs> that child has all the watermelon extract she could need. But, like, that is a really weird thing. It was constant. Like, I always craved chicken. Like, chicken wings specifically. But, like, a fried iteration of chicken and watermelon. And that kid I have seen take, a ch like, a chicken drumstick and hit her older sister with it to keep her away from the rest of the chicken. <laughs> like, she's insane. So it makes sense that, that, that like, the food you crave is the food that is going to be your favorite. Mm -hmm. And I feel really bad for Carter, my oldest, because I ate some weird stuff, man. <laughs> what did you eat? Everything. <laughs> I, I specifically remember a day I was asked to never order in a restaurant again after this day. Um, I had ordered a banana split with a side of pickles, and I had brought my own black olives with me. Because I really liked, like, the sweet and salty. Like, not at the same time. But I would take, like, a bite of the banana split. Which, by the way, guys, I hate ice cream. Not a thing I like. Um, so I would take a bite of the banana split. And then I would, like, pop a black olive in my mouth to get, like, the, the sweet and then the spicy and then the, like, or the salty. Like, it was just a thing. I don't know. But it was, like, constantly. I was, like, I need, like, a, to change my bites every second. I love that you carried around black olives. That is, I, I, I'm going to start doing that now, actually. I'm just going to carry a can of black. I love olives so You much. don't need to do cans. So they actually sell, if you did not know this, everybody, uh, they sell in the condiment aisle now uh, black olives to go. And they come in four packs. I've seen those, yeah. Of lovely little containers. And they also have bags of, like, 
olive medleys. Yes, I've gotten one of those. Yeah, I hadn't seen them up here yet, but we got one when we were at the beach a couple years ago. They're at the place that you hate, but I can get them for you if you need to. Okay. Um, but but yes, those are excellent little uh, little olive snackers if you guys like olives. <laughs> oh, olives. I'm not stoned. You're stoned. Um. <laughs> So um, I guess that is our show today. Um, oh, I have a shout out to a new patron. Woohoo! Welcome to the Patreon, Della Brown. Hi, Della. Hi, Della. And remember that you can join us over there, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And you can also come and read old news on our post. Um, well, my post, uh, Christy Baxter's Old News. I'll put the link in the show notes. So that's way it, that way it's there. I have almost 100 followers. Considering I only started it a couple weeks ago. That's I, good. I don't even have one. But well, I, I mean, not a lot of people do. It's, it's, but I'm just trying it and see where it goes. I am so... Because so, I could never get any traction on Twitter. I'm totally terrible at even though uh, I have social media. Like 3,000 followers on Twitter. So. I do not have that at all. I, would, I think I actually have to... Yeah, see, look, I would have to re-download Instagram and Twitter and, um, hmm. like all my apps really frankly (laughs) (laughs) well I was building it up for like my writing career you know um which uh I don't know might have something happening in it now which Uh, is exciting it's very exciting I can't believe it the seed I planted seven years ago might bear fruit (laughs) that's bonkers absolutely bonkers uh think good thoughts for me guys because I'm like a nervous wreck over here I forgot how much it sucks to be waiting on news from the publishing world and that's no one's fault. It is how it is. But I just forgot that it's like, every time you think about it, you're like, I should check my submittable page. <laughs> oh, gosh. So everybody cross your fingers. Sometimes good do. shit happens if you uh, let it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm perfectly willing to let this happen. Yeah. So it's, it's fine. It's that's fine. fine. All right, everyone. Well, hey, I hope you have a lovely day, and we will see you next week. Yes, absolutely. Don't murder somebody and then carry their body around in your car while you sell candy. Yeah, probably don't do that. Uh, Don't tell the newspaper people that you do not drink or cheat, and then take them to the bar where you try to bring one of the newspaper people home with you. (laughs) And as always, winking is encouraged. Always wink. (laughs) That's what makes you attractive and smart. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Municipal judge. Ah! Thank you. (laughs)